0: Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast A few housekeeping points before we begin Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced So people, verses, hadith, etc. They are all in the episode notes Which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few But when you listen to longer form episodes The notes are meant to be a resource and an aid Number two I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. So first, I'll begin by asking the question, you know, why should we study the seerah? And what is it that we aim for? One of the interesting things in the Islamic sciences is that every science that is taught always begins with why it is taught. You know, What the goal is, who started this science, why is it called what it's called, uh, how do we approach it, they're called al-mebad the, al-ashr, The ten intro statements I'm not going to go through them today But what's interesting about that Is that every time the ulama sat down To uh, write about something Or to teach something They were very clear about why they were doing it And everybody has a bias Even we, we have our own bias But we are very clear about our bias We don't hide our bias We're not, we're not ashamed of why we do certain things. Whereas in other people, when they teach something or theories are developed, you don't necessarily know why they were developed. You don't necessarily know why, what they're trying to achieve. But all of the, all of the ulum al-shariah, all of the Islamic sciences, the sharia sciences, all of them are very clear upfront why they were compiled, what the goal is, what is the desired outcome, etc. cetera. Meaning that our biases is transparent. So in, in that tradition, we ask the question, why, why should we study the seerah? The first thing is that the seerah is not simply a historical retelling of events. So the goal is not for us to look at the history of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and just say, this happened on this day, this happened on that day, then this happened, then this happened, and then, then it was over. That's not the goal, even though the seerah is written like that, but that's not why, we're, why we study it. It's not just retelling of historical facts. But rather, when we study the seerah, we are seeing how Islam itself was manifest through the history of the Prophet wasallam, in its most perfect form. So when we read verses in the Qur'an or we talk about Ethical values, you know, that we believe that lying is haram, that we believe being honest is important, all of these things. Well, How does that manifest in actual life? This is why we study the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, of course, we read it through those historical events, because that's how it was manifest. But that's why we want to learn about these events and what causes what, what were the pressures, what were the external factors, what was life like in the ancient world at that time? We, we learn all of these things in order that when we come to talk about the actual events of the Prophet's life, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, we can see how Islam actually unfolded and how it was manifest. Because the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, is the perfect manifestation of Islam. When Sayyidah Aisha, وسلم, was asked about the Prophet's uh, character, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, she said, His character was the Qur'an. And we refer to the Prophet, peace be upon him, as Al-Insanul ال- Kamil, the perfect human being, meaning that he is the absolute perfect embodiment of what a human being, both man and woman, can achieve. And therefore, we look to him, you know, for our guidance. Number two is we want to know about the personality of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, his personal intimate qualities. So it's not just on this day this happened and on this day this happened. We want to know how did the Prophet ﷺ feel? How did he react? How did he act? Uh, how did he function? How did he live his life? Everything about his personality ﷺ. Because Allah Ta'ala says, Indeed, verily in the Messenger of Allah ﷺ is a perfect example. So everything he does is an example for us. The way he sleeps is an example for us. The way he eats is an example for us. The way he, he, he wore his clothes is an example for us. The way he functioned with people is an example for us. So when, you, when we read these historical events, we also read in the historical events how did the Prophet ﷺ act, react, interact with the people around him, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, you read all of these hadith, for example, the vast majority of the hadith, over 95% of the hadith talk about character, character building. Now keep in mind that the Prophet ﷺ was saying those hadith while, he, while Medina was being attacked from the north and the south and the east and the west. All, he dealt with all of that, all of those pressures, but yet he only spoke these beautiful words. So when you put these two together, you get a picture of what the personality of the Prophet was like. sallallahu we want, to, we want to make the Prophet, peace be upon him, close to us. And the way to make him close to us, or one of the ways, is to have a picture in our minds of what his personality was like. So a lot of the sirah, we're just going to talk about facts. Who his father was and who his mother was, who his children were, his uncles, how many of this he had, how many of that he had. You know, how tall he was, you know, how many white hairs he had in his beard. All of these facts, why do we have them? Is because it, it creates this picture, a portrait of the Prophet Sasan, both physically and and personally. I mean, that's not all we're going to do, but I mean, a lot of what we will talk about is we'll come to sections and we'll just, you know, have a list of, of you know, we need to know at least four or five generations prior who the Prophet ﷺ's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, etc. We should have these names memorized. Why? Because it helps create for us this this picture. I mean, you know uh, some facts about your family, your parents, and where your parents come from. And, you know, this is even more important than we know about the Prophet. Number three, to see the, the perfect example, the Uswah Hasana, in all aspects of life, so that this can serve as our personal. Framework of, of living our own life So the Prophet ﷺ is the, is the absolute answer To how do you act in this situation How do you act in that situation What do you do when you're sad What do you do when you're happy What do you do when this happens What do you do when that happens The ultimate answer to those questions Are in the life of the Prophet wasallam. Now we might not always be able to do that we might not always be able to act the way he acted, but then we have a goal. When the Prophet's son died, Ibrahim, the Prophet was, was grief-stricken and he cried. But his heart was firm with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I mean, that episode is a very intimate snapshot into how to deal with tragedy, how to deal with difficulty, that it is appropriate to show Sadness, it is appropriate to cry, it is appropriate to be upset But that's on the outside, on the inside Your heart is firm that this is from the uh, action and the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala It doesn't shake your faith But it is appropriate when something bad happens to be upset It's appropriate to cry at a loss, etc For you know, Just an example that comes to mind Now we might not always be able to do that But when something bad happens And you're ready to give up And then somebody comes and tells you But remember what the Prophet ﷺ was like when his son Ibrahim ﷺ died. Something inside you triggers something inside you and you you, you agree. Okay, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to try to find my way back. So then you have an answer to all of those questions. That's very important because oftentimes, you know, many people, they don't. They don't know how to function in stress. They don't know how to function in anxiety. They don't know how to function... In plurality, they don't know how to function in this, they don't know how to function in that and, it, and these pressures sometimes crush people But we have answers to these questions The answer is in the life of the messenger So we have a framework then Of how we should live our lives Again, as I said in the beginning, our bias is very clear We believe that this is the best way to live uh, life And we strive for that And that's why we study the seerah We're very clear about our We love the Prophet wasallam. Alhamdulillah, that's our bias Next, part of the reason we study the seerah is that we understand the Qur'an itself. Many of the verses of the Qur'an refer to actual incidents in the life of the Prophet Wasallam throughout the seerah. Whether it be a battle, whether it be a sahaba that did this, whether it be the hijrah, etc. So by studying the seerah, and when we study those sections, we, we mention those verses. So when we come to read those verses later, we'll remember, okay, this I, I understand, you know, in my mind that this verse deals with this, this verse deals with that. So the seerah becomes a tafsir of the Quran. Number five, studying the seerah helps us generate an authentic understanding of Islam and its sources. So that's just a fancy way of saying, you know, Quran and Sunnah. When we when we want to know what something, what the answer to something is, Islamically, we go back to the Quran and the Sunnah. But when we do that, we essentially are going back to the Prophet ﷺ because upon him was revealed the Quran and the Sunnah is, you know, his actions and his his statements ﷺ. So oftentimes we are detached from that authenticity. I heard that somebody said this or I saw many people they send me like a clip on WhatsApp like look at this what do you think about this? and it's like some guy yelling saying this is haram and this is haram and this is bidah." so we lose connection so people they think that that's Islam you know somebody yelling saying that this is haram and this is bidah. that's Islam but no that's you know that's somebody, inter- somebody's interpretation and most of the times the things that people send me are wrong so I say no this is wrong because of this this is wrong because of that but we want to cut through all of that, you know, f- for lack of a better word, all of that BS, and we want to go back to the source. So to have an accurate view of the source, the seerah provides us that framework. We we learn about how the Quran was revealed, we learn about the life of the Prophet. So therefore, we have a sense, a sense of what's right, a sense of authentic Islam. And that sense is actually very important Because sometimes somebody says something Or you hear somebody that says something And it doesn't sit well with you So I don't, I don't think that, that that doesn't make sense That's very important uh, Like um, uh, a reaction that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Helps the believer develop Many times when we were studying in, in the university And um you know, we'd be talking about th- something historical or something Islamic And you know, the professors, you know, like an orientalist or not a Muslim or something like that They'll say things, and you know, we didn't know, but it's just that, that doesn't make any sense I, that, I can't believe that that's how the Prophet wasallam that's what he meant or that's what he did That sense comes from studying the seerah One of the outcomes of studying the seerah is you have this sense of what's authentic versus what's not authentic And that's very, very important. You need, like, it's like a shot, you know, like a vaccine. A vaccine against stupidity. Six, the Sira provides us with an active, with an example of how an active member of society lives. Regardless of your position. So whether you're a son or a daughter, or whether you're a father, or whether you're just starting out in life, or whether you're a rich person or a poor person, or whether you're somebody in politics and power, or you provide services, all of those things and more, the Sahaba did all of those things. The Sahaba were were just as diverse as we were. So when we read the seerah, you know, we start out in Mecca, and we see... The life of the Prophet before Islam And then as, he, as the revelation comes And the Muslims are persecuted You know, that's very different Than at the end of the seerah When the Prophet is the head of a state Head of an army, qadi, mufti You know, developing the state of Islam uh, Different sahaba have different missions You know, political missions Ambassadors, generals, battles, intelligence uh al-Yamani, radiallahu like the head of the Prophet, intelligence apparatus, I mean all of these things and more. So it's not just prayer and wudu and you know fasting and and hajj and Umrah No, it's it's life. So you can find your role model as it were, your archetype in the seerah of the Prophet. Now of course we're not going to be the Prophet because there's no revelation after the revelation of the Prophet Sallallahu but we will see how the Prophet you know, divvied out all of these responsibilities You know, how, how I can be In where Allah placed me now The best manifestation of what I found in the seerah Whether it be, you know, starting a business Or whether it be starting your career Or whether it be studying Islam Or whether it be, you know, working as an employee Helping people in charity, so on and so forth So we find how to be an active member of society because Islam was not, is not meant for, to isolate us. As a matter of fact, this was frowned upon. The Prophet did not like people to live by themselves. And the Sahaba, some Sahaba, they, they, just, you know, they just lived by themselves. But the majority of the Sahaba that we know intimately, and their names, they were part of the hustle and bustle of life in Mecca and in Medina. Or, or in Abyssinia. We'll talk about that as well. The, the, the Sahaba that went to Abyssinia and remained in Abyssinia. So what was it like living as a minority, etc. So all of these modes of life, we see the theme is to be an active member of, of society. Because that's one of the meta reasons why Allah created us. And شاكم من الأرض واستعمركم فيها Allah created you from, from the earth and has asked of you to develop it. Istamara in the Arabic language is the wazn istafala. Istafala means the person ask, is asking of the other person So when Allah Ta'ala says And you won't find this in any English translation It's mistranslated I've, I've looked at almost all of the English translations of this verse When Allah says Allah has asked of us That we build this earth So Allah has placed us on this earth And has tasked us And asked us to build it Well how do you build it? You can only build it if you build it in community In society You can't build it by yourself So the, the the goal, one of the meta goals of, of just being created, being a human being period, is to be an active member of your community. Now it could be, you know, your neighborhood, it could be your village, it could be your mosque. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to, not everyone here has to go win the Nobel Prize in, in different fields. I'm, but I'm saying, some people will do that. Some people have have that proclivity. Most of us will just sort of, wa an All of you are shepherds and all of you are responsible for your flock. So we see where our flock is And that's what we have That's how we be active So it's not like you have to change the world But you have to change your world Your little world that you occupy And the people around you You have to be active in that world So the seerah provides us that And then lastly the and, and perhaps most importantly Studying the seerah Is one of the greatest ways For us to fall in love with the Prophet Sallallahu And love of the Prophet is one of our marks of faith. None of you truly believe the hadith in Bukhari and elsewhere. None of you truly believe until I am more beloved to you than your wealth, your family, your children, and all people. So love of the Prophet, that type of intense type of love, is part of our faith. So when we, when we look at the seerah the way we will, inshaAllah, hopefully that will facilitate, we will see why loving the Prophet is so important. And how great the Prophet ﷺ was, and how wonderful he was, and how amazing he was, and how excellent he was, sallallahu alayhi wa how beautiful he was, sallallahu alayhi wa And then that love facilitates following. And that's really the key. That's what we want We want to live the sunnah Of the Prophet But if you just say that to somebody If somebody says You know the, the sunnah Is You know Like uh, you know People the men That, that uh, they have henna on their beard Right They have like these red beards Some of you have come back from Umrah, So you've seen these like You know very bright red People, people with bright red beards Now if somebody just comes and says By the way you have to You know dye your beard red That's the sunnah I mean Please that's the only sunnah. Can you find any other sunnah for me to do? You know, I'm not going to dye my, my beard, you know, red. It's it, it's like very weird. But when you fall in love with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, now I'm not saying you have to dye your hair. I just something that popped in my head. When you love the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, then that's something that comes from the inside. You see why somebody would do that. Because they want to do everything that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam did to the best of their ability. And maybe that's something simple for them to do. But if you're on the other side of that statement, it sounds weird. Or there are some you know, uh, stories in the um, seerah, uh, in the Prophet wasallam. maybe his, um, his shirt was, I mean he didn't have buttons, but what we would call unbuttoned. Which is actually why a lot of the traditional clothing have this gap in the middle. So does that mean that everyone wears a button-down shirt has to you know, unbutton it and walk around with their chest bare? No, that's not, that, that's not how we, we look at it. So we don't want to look at the sunnah from that point of view. We want to look at the sunnah from the point of view that we love this man more than we love our own selves. And he, we understand that he is the basis of everything that is good, beautiful, and excellent. So therefore, I want to live an excellent, beautiful life. I will live the life of Sayyidina Muhammad So then everything just becomes easy. So the things that you focus on is how can your state be like the state of the Prophet wasallam? How can you forgive? How can you love? How can you always smile? You know, the Prophet wasallam never said no, for example. Imagine going through life never saying no, somebody asks you for something and your answer is always yes, okay, here, here you go. Rather than, oh, not now, I can't, I'm busy, you know, all of the no's that we have. So those type of things, that's what the heart of the, of the sunnah of the Prophet Wasallam. But we won't get there, and we won't be able to access that if we don't love the Prophet Wasallam. Because when you, love, when you love somebody, you're obsessed with that person. When you love somebody, they, they feel your consciousness. That's all you can see is that person. And that's where we want to be with the Prophet wasallam. So that's a little bit of why. Next, I wanted to just talk very briefly about how the seerah comes to us. Because sometimes some people, they have these type of questions. But I don't want to dwell too much on this, on this topic because it can be a little uh, too academic. One of the facts that we need to remember is that both the Qur'an and the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ were written during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ. That's important. There's a common misconception that even sometimes Muslims have that somehow the hadith were not written you know, until Imam al-Bukhari showed up. And they'll say, well, oh, Imam Bukhari, you know, he, he lived several hundred years after the Prophet so how did he know these hadith? you know, the hadith are false, and all those, like, arguments that you kind of, you know, you hear sometimes, even in Muslim circles, that's based on this misconception, not understanding that the seerah, or the hadith, rather, was written at the time of the Prophet Um Abdullah ibn Amr, for example, he was one of the most famous, and he had a, for lack of a better word, like a hadith, a book or a hadith document Called the sahifa al sadiqah The true document That's what it was called So he wrote all of the hadith That he heard from the Prophet uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib وسلم, Of course he wrote the hadith uh, Abu Huraira Who wrote the hadith Zayd ibn Thabit عنه, He wrote the hadith Dealing with inheritance law And all of these Hadiths that were written by these Sahaba Subsequently are the, are the hadith that we find compiled in, for example, the Musnad of Imam Ahmad So the Musnad of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, which is this massive you know, Encyclopedic collection of hadith that Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal عنه, put together He put it together by the Sahaba's names So when you go to the section of Zayd ibn Thabit in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad, where did Imam Ahmed Muhammad get these hadith? It's from these, It's from the sahifa that existed that was narrated from the Sahaba's time to subsequent generations. So somebody says, "Well, where is this sahifa sa'diqa?" Well, we don't have an actual, you know, parchment that says a sahifa a sa'diqa. You know, trademark United States trademark office. I mean, you know, it's not. You're not going to find that. But these were copied and copied and copied until they were included in the books like the Muslim of Imam Ahmad Ibn Hanbal. Part of what was compiled is also the life of the Prophet Wasallam. So that's how we get the hadith slash seerah sources. In addition to obviously as I said the Qur'an. In addition, we know from the seerah itself that the Prophet Alaihi Wasallam commanded many of the Sahaba to write different things down, whether they be treaties, whether they be letters written to, as, to the ambassadors, to other countries, other nations, uh, other religious communities. So the Prophet Wasallam had scribes, and those scribes wrote things down. What did they write? What would we call what they wrote? The hadith of the Prophet Wasallam. If the Prophet wrote something to you know, the Muqawqas uh, or Qisra قس, or in our language of Islam, that's called a hadith, right? Isn't that the writing of the Prophet? So these things were written at the time. And those letters, some of those letters still survive till today. Like the letter that the Prophet wrote to Heracles. Uh, I've actually seen this letter. Actually, it's very interesting. Uh, well, I, I'll tell that story later another time. But I've actually seen this letter in a museum in, in Jordan. And in uh, Istanbul, You know, they have many of these artifacts. So you can actually see the actual letter that the Prophet his scribe wrote, the Prophet dictated And was stamped with the seal of the ring of the Prophet ﷺ So the Sahaba, many of them knew how to write We know that They wrote the Qur'an on parchment And some of the Sahaba were selected to write the Hadith Just one Hadith uh, to help us remember this uh, In Sahih al-Bukhari, in the section of knowledge, Bab al-Ilm uh, Abi Huraira anhu he says None of the Sahaba, Laysa, his Sahaba, to Ridwan Allah, alayhim, ahad akthar, minni hifdan lil ahadith, bistithna Abdullah ibn Omar, radiallahu anhu, leno cana yaktub ahadith in Nabi, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, willem aktub, willem akon aktub. Abu Huraira, he says, nobody memorized the hadith of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, better than me, except Abdullah ibn Omar. Because, Abdullah, because Abu Hurairah, he had a The Prophet made dua That he would have this phenomenal memory That he wouldn't forget anything that the Prophet said So he was one of the Maybe the most of the sahaba That narrated the hadith on the Prophet So he said, nobody knew more than me Or wrote more than me Except Abdullah bin Umar Because he used to physically write them down But I didn't Abu Hurairah just memorized them And would narrate to the Tabi'in after him But Abdullah bin Umar He would write the hadith down this hadith is in Bukhari. Imam Abu Dawood, he narrates another hadith that Abdullah ibn Umar, again, same sahabi, Abdullah ibn Umar, used to write the hadith. And then the other sahaba criticized him, says, don't do that, don't, don't write the hadith. We weren't asked, so he stopped. So the Prophet وسلم, he ordered him, he said, uh, اِكْتُبْ yadi ma yakhruj minhu illa the Prophet ﷺ said he ordered him to continue writing, and he said, I swear by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that nothing comes out of my lips except that is tr- that it is true. Because Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, wa ma anil in huwa illa the Prophet ﷺ does not speak uh, from his own self, but this is revelation. Meaning the Quran and the Hadith are from the from the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are many other hadith in the Sahih collection That remind us That the hadith were actually written At the time of the Prophet So this should helpfully Hopefully Cast away any of those uh, Notions that people have That well there is this gap Of 200 and 300 years etc Now When we come And we look at the hadith The hadith is like raw material Now we have to interpret the hadith and we have to grade the hadith. And from this, Islam emerged with this set of sciences that helped us verify the information that we got. And we applied this these tools of verification to the Qur'an itself. So the Qur'an had to go through a process as it was compiled in one mushaf. There were certain conditions for accepting the verse in the Qur'an. And those same type of conditions apply to the hadith as well. In this regard, and this is a very complicated set of different you know, disciplines that I don't want to necessarily get into, but in general what is important for us to know about that is that what matters in Islam is verifying the person that gave you this information. That's why it's called ilm rijal the science of, of narrators. It's not just what is said, it's who is saying it. Is the person who is saying it somebody that's honest, upright, did they say their five prayers, were they known to forget, were they lazy, were they old, were they blind, you know when I go and I meet somebody and they narrate something to me, when I met this person, how did I find them, are they morally upright or not, this is what this science was obsessed with, so the religion is passed generation to generation through people, through interaction, human interaction, now of course what is said has to also make sense, I mean that's, that goes without saying, but What's more important is that the person narrating is somebody that I can trust. And that's why it's very, very different than other paradigms of history. Other people are just more obsessed with what happened. Is that uh, rationally? Is that possible or not possible? If it's not rationally possible in my estimation, I reject it. But that's not how we think. Is the person who told me this honest? Yes, I believe them. Khalas, it's done. I, I, then this is a true statement. Then this, this inf- piece of information is high probability that this is a hadith of the Prophet wasallam. So on and so forth. So this science or set of tools for verification. When it comes to using the hadith for religious matters, ahkam, sharia rulings, the ulama were very strict with the type of hadith that they accept for that. Because we don't want our religion to be based on something weak. So when you stand to make wudu, and you stand to pray, and you start fasting tomorrow for Ramadan, and you take out your zakah, you know with certainty that what you're doing is correct. You can't you know, be praying and full of doubt. Did duhr come in? Did duhr not come in? I'll just pray just in case. You can't do that. You have to be sure that duhr came in. You have to be sure that you have the wudu. You have to be sure that you're facing the qibla. So because ibadah is based on yaqeen, is based on certainty, the, the pieces of information that we use to build this certainty also have to be certain. So the criteria is strict. But when we come to talk about the seerah and history and moral activity and moral teachings, the, the restriction is, less, is looser. So we will use weak hadith that encourage good actions. We will incorporate weak hadith or hasan hadith in the story of the seerah. As long as it adds to the seerah, doesn't like, you know, say the opposite of what all of the sahih hadith say, etc. So again, why am I saying this? Because some people, they want to, one, poke holes of doubt into the seerah. Saying, well, you know, all of the seerah is based on weak hadith. Which is not true, but people will say that. That's one extreme. So people, Muslims, just stop reading the seerah. Or the other extreme this, the seerah is so full of these weak hadith I have to purify the seerah And write a seerah only based on sahih hadith Which is not how the salaf dealt with the seerah So you get uh, a book of seerah That's very short and very concise It doesn't have any of the stories That we know that we grew up hearing Where are those stories? Oh those are all da'if So we throw them in the trash yani They're da'if yani That means they're garbage No Da'if is a technical term, means that this hadith in its narration or its its sanad, its chain of transmission, there's some weakness. Does the hadith detract from the seerah? Did, did it say like the Prophet had like 11 fingers instead of 10? I mean, something abnormal like that? No, it just you know says that there was a spider in the cave. And Does that take away from the fact that the Prophet hid in the cave with Sidney Abu Bakr? And it's mentioned in the Qur'an, إِذْ قَالَ sahibihi La tahzan in Allah ma'ana. The Prophet said to his friend, Do not be, don't stress out. Allah is with us. Isn't this in the Quran? Yes. So, what, what, what's wrong with adding the story of the cobweb and the birds and the nest? Is that haram, yani? No, but it's da'if. Well, who cares if it's da'if? It makes the story sound better. It shows us Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protecting the Prophet. It shows us that the Prophet took all of the asbab, took all of the means humanly possible. He went south instead of north. And he took a tracker from Quraysh, not from the Muslims. The guide that took the Prophet out of Mecca was from Quraysh, was from the kuffar of Quraysh. You know, hiding their tracks, going off of the, you know, using our language, they didn't go up 95. You know, they took all the back roads south, you know, and looped around. And then they hid in the cave. So these stories, they, they, they show us when you have absolute, Faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Absolute certainty in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Then Allah subhanahu wa min Allah will give you your sustenance from which you do not ex- expect So the seerah, the restriction uh, or the criteria for using the data from the hadith Is looser than it is when we talk about zakah, uh, wudu, uh, hajj, prayer, etc The last thing I want to say is that in relation to the Prophet ﷺ, there are different types of books, different types of literature. The seerah is just one of them, which is essentially the chronology or the history of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. But there are other books that are important to keep in mind for us to have a more complete understanding of Sayyidina Muhammad ﷺ. One of them is called the shama'il, which are the personal Character traits of the Prophet peace be upon him All of his names uh, What he used to eat What he used to wear uh, The mat he used to sleep on What his camel was like What his horse was like What his bow and arrow were like Etc All of the the personal effects And physical traits of the Prophet That's one genre of literature Another genre of literature is called Al-Khasa'is or the special traits of the Prophet ﷺ. There are certain things that the Prophet ﷺ had that we don't have. There were certain abilities that he had that we don't have. There were certain things he had to do that were farda for him that are not farda for us. All of these special qualities, al-khasa'is, talk about essentially the miraculous nature of the Prophet Like he could see behind him, like he could see in front of him. It was a famous one. Can any of you see behind you? I mean, I know your parents, we always say that to our kids, but we can't really see behind us. You can only see in front of you. The Prophet ﷺ could see behind him like he could see in front of him. The Prophet ﷺ could decipher the stars in the constellations with an accuracy that no human can, <clears throat> can, uh, can see with their physical eyes. So his eyesight was stronger than our eyesight. He, his eyes would sleep, but his heart would never sleep. Meaning he was never unconscious when he slept. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. All of these type of khasa'is, special qualities. He had to pray Qiyam al-Layl. That was fard for him. It's sunnah for us. So that's a body of literature. Another body of literature is Dala'il al-Nabuwa. The proofs of prophet, prophethood. What proofs that we have that he was a prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa Whether it be his miracles, whether it be what people said about him, whether it be uh, what the other uh, revealed books say about the coming of the Prophets, etc. That type of stuff called Dala'il al Another type of book talks about the benefits of saying salawat on the Prophet, وسلم, which is a, a very important aspect of our devotional life. And many many books Almost encyclopedic books That talk about the benefits Of doing salawat on the Prophet Different formulas of doing salawat on the Prophet All the miracles that happened to people That did salawat on the Prophet These type of things And then lastly There are books That talk about Artifacts and other people in his life So there will be books about his wives Books about his family, Sahasalam, books about his hukuma, uh, his, his government, books about his tools, uh, the his sword and his canes and his bow and arrows and his cups and so books about uh, other people in his life, his Sahaba, of course, wives, family, uh, and these type of artifacts. <clears throat> now, not all of these genre of literatures have you know hundreds and thousands of books in them. You know, the most common is the seerah, since that's, what, because that's why we're going to study the seerah. But it's important to know that there are other categories and bodies of, of literature that address these different as- aspects of the Prophet because those give us a more complete picture of him, sallallahu alaihi wasallam.